Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let us open our Bibles once again to the book of Joshua. We have had a great time, at least I have, studying this great book this summer. And now we're coming to the end of it. And here in the 23rd chapter, Joshua's life was coming to an end. And what a life it was. He was born and raised as a slave in Egypt. He had seen the ten plagues that God sent to that nation. He crossed over with the nation through the Red Sea on dry land and became aide-de-camp of Moses. Ultimately, he was appointed leader of the nation upon Moses' death and received confirmation directly from the Lord that he was God's man for the moment. He continued to lead the people faithfully, and when we arrive here in chapter 23, Joshua is making plans for his soon passing. And I pray that all God's people would live so faithfully as Joshua, but I pray also that all God's people would prepare for our own passing as well as Joshua did. I said a few years ago from this pulpit that I believe one of the primary jobs of a pastor is to prepare people to die. And I believe that now more than ever. Joshua was a man that not only lived well, but he died well. There's much to learn from this chapter about both living and dying. And I've chosen five points to dwell on from the text today. And we're just going to walk verse by verse. And I think these uh, five points will sort of drop into our laps as we look at them. First is a firm grasp of the obvious. Joshua had a firm grasp of the obvious. Look at verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 23. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for Israel, for the elders and the heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in years. Now he was not telling them anything they didn't know. It was certainly known that he was getting older, but he was giving lip service to the reality that he would not be around much longer. And sometimes today when people who are very elderly say, you know, I'm not going to be around much longer, we are quick to say, don't talk like that. But we ought to talk like that. It's not morbid, it's simple realism. Psalms 90.10 says, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, Yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. The Bible warns us that a full life expectancy is about 70 years old. And if the Lord grants it that you live 10 more years to 80, you're already above average. And that has not changed to this good day. Even with our advancements in science and medicine, we know that's about how long the average person can expect to live. Well, Joshua by this time was well older than 80. He was well into his 90s. The Lord had given him strength. He was like the person the psalmist refers to in Psalm 92, 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Don't you want to be full of sap and green when you're in your 90s? I I do. And Joshua was a great example of that. He, He was not throwing in the towel. He was not coasting to the finish line in neutral, but he was a realist. And I am amazed at the number of people who ignore the obvious truth that stares us in the mirror every day. That we're all getting older. And which means that time is getting shorter. So many people 
have no exit strategy. They have no will. They haven't discussed their death with their family and friends as if by ignoring the obvious truth it won't happen. And friends, we need like Joshua to live with a firm grasp of the obvious. The Lord is gracious with every wrinkle and every gray hair to remind us that it is appointed unto men once to die and then comes the judgment. Joshua says in verse 14 that I go the way of all the earth. Paul was reminding them that the death rate at that time was 100%. It's still 100%. You and I will one day go the way of all the earth. But even the death of a Christian is an opportunity to share the gospel. I was reminded of that this week when one of our pastors was relating in our staff meeting a recent doctor's visit. He went in for some testing and uh, went to a specialist who was from another country and from a different faith tradition. And when they were making small talk, the doctor said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a pastor. He said, oh, that means you're a Christian. He says, yes, sir, I'm a Christian. He said, I've always wanted to ask a Christian. And if it won't offend you, I want to ask you a personal question. He said, sure. He said, why is it that Christians die so well. Now you think about that. What an incredible testimony that is. Here's a man who wasn't a Christian, and yet he'd observed the lives of Christians, people who truly know the Lord, that even in the way they die, they live fundamentally different than everyone else. May that be true of all of us. Now the second thing we see in this text is a factual review of the evidence. He's called this meeting of what the Scripture says, the heads of Israel, the elders, the judges, the officers. And he begins to review what's happened in their life in the last 40 years. Look at what it says, verse 3. You have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes. With all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan, even to the great sea towards the setting of the sun, the Lord your God, He will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you will possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. Now he's speaking to those who have been with Him the entire time. They were with Him when they crossed the Jordan River that the Lord had miraculously caused to stop up so that they could cross on dry ground. These men were there. They walked around the city of Jericho 13 times before the trumpets blew and they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. They were with, jo, with uh, jo, Joseph, excuse me, Joshua in the field as they fought all day, even as the sun stopped in the sky as they fought Ai. The Lord kept all of His promises, and they saw it with their own eyes. In other words, the people that Joshua was speaking with didn't have to be convinced of the Lord's goodness and greatness. They just needed to be reminded. You might have noticed this morning as you made your way in that we are making efforts as a church family to identify all of our military veterans here in the church. And as we've been doing this for the last several weeks and, and months, we've come to a stunning realization that to the best of our knowledge, we only have three World War II veterans left in the entire church. By the way, if you know of more, please contact me because we certainly don't want to leave anyone out. I say that's a stunning truth because when I was a boy growing up, World War II veterans were the leaders in our country. They were the teachers and the mayors, those who we looked up to, and now almost all of them are gone. And so that means that when the last of them are gone, there will not be anyone who remembers Pearl Harbor 
or D-Day. There's coming soon, friends, a generation who did not see it with their own eyes. They will will have to be convinced of threats from afar, not just reminded. And if you think World War II seems too far away, this week is also the anniversary of 9-11. And was reminded how quickly time has passed because uh, when 9-11 happened 17 years ago, I was a seminary student down at Fort Worth. I was in class when a young man came in and told what had happened and class was dismissed and we were instructed to go and pray. And as we gather around the televisions there to see what was happening as you likely did at your place of business or school, we didn't know what would be next. I went over to a friend of mine who was married and his wife was nine months pregnant. She went into labor that day and gave birth to a little boy. That little boy is now a senior in high school and has no memory whatsoever of that entire period of history. So we have adults now, is my point, who will have to be convinced of these things rather than just reminded. Joshua wants his people, his leaders in particular, to continue to tell the story of God's goodness and greatness and provision to his children and to his grandchildren who won't remember it for themselves. He knows that in just a few years, Those who crossed the river, those who walked around the city, those who saw the sun stopped in the sky won't remember. And they need to know. And so he gives a factual review of the evidence. And all evidence points to one abiding and enduring truth that all of God's promises are true. Now the third thing we see here beginning verse 6 is a forceful plea to the leadership. Now remember... There are two meetings that Joshua calls at the end of this book. In chapter 23, he calls the leaders together. In chapter 24, as we'll see next week, he calls the nation together. That is all the people. And he says to them some certain things. Verse 6, he tells the leaders not to depart from the book. Look at verse 6. He says, be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. That is almost verbatim what God said to Joshua in Joshua 1, when he said, be strong and courageous, for just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. He told him not to depart from the book. And friends, if there's anything we need to remind our children and grandchildren today, it's not to depart from the book. There is an existential threat in every generation that we will depart from the book. There's a new heresy that emerges in every generation, but the truth is it's not new. It's just repackaged, reformulated, and given a different name. Some person, wise in their own eyes, thinks they've come up with something new. They have not. One of the most popular evangelical pastors in this country recently said that Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. His point was that there are a lot of people out there who would likely believe on Jesus if they didn't have to get through the Old Testament. And yet the Bible says it's through the knowledge of the law that we recognize our sin. We wouldn't even know we needed a Savior were it not for the Old Testament. He wants us to get rid of it. He views it as an encumbrance and an obstacle to evangelism rather than the means of evangelism. That's nothing new. It's just repackaged. But it shows that there is a threat in every generation not to hold tightly to the Word of God. And we must. He says in verse 7, there's another danger, and that is worldliness. So that you will not associate with the nations 
These which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear to them or serve them or bow down to them. So he's saying, because you haven't thoroughly driven out the people as God instructed you to, in fact, some of them had made peace agreements by this time, the danger is always going to be there that they're going to have more influence on you than you have on them. So he says, don't be like the world. Don't marry their children and don't worship their gods. Friends, we live in a world today as evangelical Christians, we, we are in the minority and becoming increasingly so every day. And the temptation is going to be, if you can't beat them, join them. To camouflage ourselves in the accoutrement of the world in the hopes that we're not recognized. And yet the Bible calls us to be different and distinct in a lost and dying world. You might know that the founder of Southwestern Seminary here in Fort Worth was a man by the name of B.H. Carroll. Carroll School District is named for his son, who was the first superintendent there. Dr. Carroll was a man of great intellect and vision, but when he was on his deathbed, he called his aide-de-camp, a man by the name of Lee Scarborough, to his bedside, knowing he was about to die. He said to Dr. Scarborough, Lee, keep the seminary lashed to the cross. What a legacy. And I would say to all of you as parents, teach your children to keep the family lashed to the cross. Keep your own life lashed to the cross. Let's keep this church lashed to the cross. Members, pastors will come and go. But so long as this church is lashed to the cross of the Lord Jesus, we will do His work in the world. And then verse 9 and 10 tells us to trust the Lord's promises Verse 9, for the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So he's reminding them that everything God said would happen, did happen. And I often remind us here that all of God's promises can be contained in two large groups. Those that have been accomplished and those that are yet to be accomplished. All of the promises of God are true and trustworthy. They find their yes and amen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if God says it, you can rest assured it either has happened or it will happen. He's reminding them that God said He would drive out the enemies before you if you'd trust in Him. And that happened, battle after battle, city after city. But then He says something very interesting after he's reminded them of all the great battles that the Lord had won on their behalf, he turns his attention to a much finer focus, to verse 11, and he says this, So take diligent heed to yourselves. Now he's speaking to the leaders. Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. In the midst of rehearsing to your children and grandchildren the greatness of the Lord and the fulfillment of His promises, don't neglect your personal devotion to Him. See, the greatest thing that a dad can do to raise his children to love the Lord is to love their mother. And the greatest thing that a parent can do to create an environment in which their children will love Jesus is to love Jesus. Because love for the things of God is more often caught than it is taught. What I mean by that is 
If you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, your children will know that your faith is sincere. Now that's no guarantee that they'll follow the Lord. We can all recite examples. But the principle abides that we are to take heed to our personal devotion and to love the, God with, love the Lord with all of our heart if we want our children to do the same. Now, the fourth thing here, verse 12, is he gives a fiery warning to the nation. Remember, he's full of sap, even in his 90s. And so he turns his attention and he says in verse 12, For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. But they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your side and a thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. These verses put me in mind of another verse, Psalm 66, 18, which says, If I regard with wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So what Joshua is saying to the land is don't be boastful or arrogant in the fulfillment of God's past promises. May that cause you to be humble and to seek Him all the more. Because He didn't do these things because you were good. He did it because He's great. And God is holy. He's telling them not to ask God to bless sin and rebellion because He will not. How many times have I seen young people, young married people, living in open rebellion to everything they were taught in the church and by their godly parents and have the nerve to ask God to bless their family? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God is holy. Don't ask God to attach Himself to sin and rebellion. He will not. And the other thing he's saying is that God is a jealous God which means that God will never be satisfied with second place in your life and heart. He knows that they are going to be attracted to the things of the world. The more closely they interact, especially if they intermarry with these pagans, they're going to want to form alliances to keep the peace. They're going to want to form business partnerships with people that don't share their values and principles. And he knows that is a sure trap. It is a slippery slope. And so he uses four words to describe what will happen if they do those things. He says it will be a snare, a trap, a whip, and thorns. All four of those things are painful, aren't they? A snare is a little piece of string or wire to catch a bird in. You put a little bird seed in there and you wait in the bushes and, and when his foot is inside of that snare you have him. At first he thinks his needs are being met. He thinks this is something good but before you know it he's caught. A trap's the same thing. It's a trap for wild animals. They're lured into by the promise of something better and then they lose their life. Or else they are enslaved. And I think that's really the picture here. The Bible says that we become slaves of our sin, don't we? And we are brought in and we're seduced and we come to the allurements of the world and it looks so good and better than what we have in the church, but, but once we taste of it, we're caught. We're trapped. We become the slave of our sin and, and we know that slaves suffer the whip. 
the whip on our side and the thorn in our eyes, that it is a constant and never-ending source of pain and irritation. And by the way, when the Lord gives this kind of warning to His people, it's not because He hates them, it's because He loves them. When the Bible says, thou shalt not, it's not because God wants you to be miserable. It's not because He's a cosmic killjoy. He's saying to you, in effect, hot, warning, don't touch. He gives us these warnings for our own protection and our own good. But know this, that God is good to His Word. He's good to His Word. If He says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And, and did it happen? Of course it did. Let's look fifthly at a final prophecy of God's judgment. Here's Joshua, and he's prophesied a lot of things up until this point in his life. The Lord has spoken to him through direct revelation. He then in turn has given that message to the people. Now he has one last prophecy to give them. Verse 14, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good works which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled in you, not one of them has failed. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until He has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. He goes on. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which He has given you. Now that seems like a distant fiction to them. All they have known is God's blessing. The walls falling. The sun stopping in the sky. Victory after victory has been theirs. But Joshua is pointing out, just as God promised you would have victory when you abide in me, He's now promising if you turn from me, you'll be wiped off the face of the earth. He says, learn from your successes before you have failures. God is good to His Word. He does not breathe idle threats. I think this is one of the attributes of God that sets Him apart from the, from the rest of us. I remember when I was a first year, 22 year old public school teacher, and I'm certain I was wide eyed because I was teaching juniors and seniors who were only four years younger than I. And I suppose one of the old grizzled teachers noticed me wide-eyed in the lunchroom one day and he came over and he sat down and he said, let me tell you the secret to surviving as a public school teacher. I said, lay it on me because I need to know. <laughs> he said, here it is. If you tell them you're going to kill them, you have to kill them. Well, he was exaggerating a little bit, I hope, but I got the point. If kids know that you don't follow through on your warnings, all is lost. They're in control. And this is what Joshua is telling them, that God does not breathe idle threats. If he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We're not like that, are we? We say we're going to do something, but as time goes on, we're too tired or our mind gets changed or the weather's different and we forget all about it. God doesn't do that. All of the promises of God, of God are yes and amen. They either have been fulfilled or they're yet to be fulfilled. 
And so my question to you history students, God said if they intermarried with the people, if they turned from Him and started worshiping these false gods, He would wipe them off the land. Did that happen? Absolutely. We know it was not too many years later when a monarchy was established in Israel. King David was there and the nation won some more victories against the Philistines. And then when David died, his son Solomon ascended the throne. And during the reign of Solomon, they had more territory than they ever had in any other part of their history. But when Solomon died, his no-count son Rehoboam took the throne. And he surrounded himself with very poor advisors. And they advised him, you've got to step on the neck of the people. If you show any weakness, if you're not tougher than your dad was, you'll never survive. And so he raised their taxes. He caused many of them to be uh, inscripted into military service. And the people rebelled. And the kingdom was divided between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom at that time. And they never were put back together. And you know the rest of history that the northern kingdoms were defeated by the Assyrians and literally disappeared from the face of the earth at that point, spread all over. And then the southern tribes were eventually taken into Babylonian captivity. The temple was destroyed. And finally, a little remnant came back, but it never was the same. Friends, if that can happen to the nation of Israel, it can happen to a believer. If it can happen to a believer, it can happen to a family. And if it can happen to a family, it can, can happen to a church. I'm not saying if you disobey the Lord, you'll lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. I'm saying if you don't walk according to the Word of God, if you don't abide by His commandments, you will lose your testimony and your effectiveness in your community. That is, you'll be set on a shelf as far as ministry is concerned. And it's happened to countless thousands of people. It's even happened to churches. Do you remember in the book of Revelation when Jesus sent His message to the seven churches of Asia? I take these were genuinely Christian people. But He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick. I don't take from that that He's, he's going to take their salvation away. He's going to remove their candlestick which was held their light. They no longer could serve and work in the name of Jesus. And what a tragedy that is. But, but there's a good reminder in all of that, friends, for all of us. And it's this, that God's eternal plans do not hinge on any one person or any church or any nation or, dare I say, any denomination. The Lord's work will go on just fine without Keith Sanders. And believe it or not, it'll go on just fine without First Baptist Church of Keller. God's eternal plan of redemption did not end in the Babylonian captivity, did it? God's plans will not be thwarted. The question is, will we get to be a part of His plan? And we have declared as a church family that we believe God's ultimate purpose and plan is to bring glory and honor to Himself, haven't we? Soli Deo Gloria. And we just ask the Lord that we would get to be in some small way a little candlestick shining His light so that Christ would be most glorified. Friends, I don't know about you, I don't want that to come to an end when I die. I want my kids to take that candle. I don't want this church 
to stop serving Jesus in this community when we're all dead and gone. And that's not that far away. We are one generation away from this church going out to existence. You understand that, right? And so that's why it's essential that, that uh, we tell our children and grandchildren, many of, them, many of them who don't remember the great things the Lord has done here. They'll have to be convinced and see it with their own eyes. But you do. You remember. Tell it to your children. Tell it to your grandchildren. Most importantly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That they'll know that your faith is real and sincere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Joshua. Lord, would you multiply his tribe, a generation of men who are faithful to the end of their life, not turning from the left or to the right. Even in his 90s, full of sap, not coasting to the finish, but also a man of realism, knowing that he was coming to the end. He wanted to pass his faith to the next generation. And Father, may we be warned with the warning that he gave the Israelites, not to unhitch from the word. In fact, just the opposite. Let us lash ourselves to the Bible and to the cross and to the Christ that the Bible reveals. No matter what's going on in the world. Lord, help us not to succumb to the temptation to be influenced by the world, but may we influence the world through our salt and light in the community. And Father, I pray that you'd raise up a generation from our youth group, from our college aid ministry, and through our young adults who believe the Bible is true and that would continue to take that light after the rest of us are dead and gone. Lord, you've been doing that for a long time. We trust you to do it once we're gone. Not for our sake, but so that Christ would be glorified in this place. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.